Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Dear Lord, please give these words real contact with our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Charles Cooley was a renowned sociologist in the previous century, and he was the originator of a concept called the looking-glass self. The looking-glass self is a theory related to the concept of identity or self-definition. He had a what I regard as a very profound insight related to that subject that runs contrary to what we hear, at least a lot of what we hear today. Many people today think that identity is self-generated, self-created. This is made known rather humorously in the character of Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. Some of you are old enough to remember Stuart Smalley, played by now Senator Al Franken. Uh, and, uh, and his character, he was a, a kind of an insecure guy. And he would wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say a daily affirmation to himself. He would look into the mirror and say, Stuart, you are good enough, you are smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. And he thought that the cumulative effect of this would be deeply transformative and liberating. Uh, Charles Cooley would say, yeah, that's not how it works. Cooley would say that identity is not self-generated. Nor does it come by how others perceive us, because we can't get inside their heads and figure out how they perceive us. Instead, identity comes from how we imagine that others perceive us. I found this to be largely true, that so much of my own inner life is attached to what I think is going on in other people's heads. I found this to be your experience, too, as I've talked with you and the things that have shaped the contours of your inner life. And it can be a very debilitating insight, this looking-glass self. For example, if you believe that your mother or your father held you in low regard, thought of you as lazy, as dim, or as less worthy than another sibling, then it will be a very hard thing to shake. And... I find that this insight is largely true, but there is a lovely uh, exception to it, and that is the man we know as Christ. In the middle of Jesus' own meteoric rise to fame, he asked his inner circle to label him, to define him, not because he needed to have his inner life uh, buttressed by the opinions of other people, Jesus is the one person who really knew who he was. But he wanted them to know who he was. And so he provokes them by asking them a question. Who do you say that I am? But this text isn't just about Jesus asking for definition. It's also about Jesus offering definition. In this passage, we see a mutual defining. Peter defines Jesus, and Jesus defines Peter. Peter calls Jesus the Christ, and Jesus calls Peter the rock. And so I want to talk about the Christ and the rock tonight. 
Beginning with the Christ, I'm going to read from verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, so at first Jesus begins broadly, uh, referencing the rumor mill. Like, what are you hearing? What are people whispering? What are they saying? What are they claiming? How are they defining me? And what's very interesting is how positive all of the responses are. The crowd is not saying the devil. The crowd is not saying a charlatan. The crowd is not saying a magician. No, they're saying that Jesus is a miracle figure like John the Baptist. By this time, John the Baptist has been beheaded. They're saying, you're a risen man. You are the most recent prophet brought back to life. And if you're not him, then you're Elijah. That is the iconic prophet of the Old Testament. You are the most important prophet that has ever lived. Now, that has special meaning if you know your Old Testament because there was this promise that Elijah, in some sense, would reappear before the great day of the Lord and the giving of the Messiah. And so now... We have Jesus on the scene, and people are assuming that he's Elijah. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the step right before we get to the last step. And then other people say, well, he's like Jeremiah. I mean, have you read Jeremiah? It's a big book in the Bible, which means it's important, and the author was important. And so you have, this, uh, you have a lot going on uh, in the rumor mill, and all of it is good press. Jesus was like a meteor, which pummeled the earth with such force and made such an impact that people for centuries have been trying to make sense of who he is, what he means. This goes back, you know, even to the Talmud, which is a, a written a version of rolling Jewish tradition, uh, finally inscribed in the 4th century AD. And the Talmud understands Jesus to be a warlock or a wizard. Skipping ahead a few years, you have Thomas Jefferson, who regards Jesus to be one of the greatest philosophers that's ever lived, rivaling Aristotle and Plato. You also have contemporary theologians like Marcus Borg, who understands Jesus to be a spirit person. That's what he labels Jesus, a spirit person. That is somebody who is so in touch with the transcendent that he is able to rise above base-level human instincts and impulses. His life is consumed with divinity to the degree that he can interact with the world in a superior manner, much like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. And you have a very new author, Reza Aslan, who is a Muslim, who writes that Jesus is the present face of the 1990s band Rage Against the Machine that Jesus Christ is an anarchist and he's coming to undo corrupt systems, even if it means violence. And so lots of people have sought to understand the meaning in the man. Who is this Jesus? And it's easy to have a disconnected opinion about Jesus, like you would have a disconnected opinion about George Washington. But it's harder when the question is turned on you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He then takes his inner circle. With whom uh, 
he has spoken at length, in front of whom he's taught the masses. Before their very eyes, they've seen dead little children rise again. And they've seen people who have been sick all their lives cease being ill. And he looks at them, and he has this defining talk, and he says, well, what about you? He's never asked them this before. At this point, what do you think about me? How would you define me? And Peter, perhaps as a spokesman for the group, and perhaps offering his own idea, defines Jesus. He replies, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Now, what does the word Christ mean? We say it all the time, hopefully more piously than crassly. But we, we say the word a lot. Is it a last name? Is it an honorific religious title? I mean, what is this? Well, it has a rich Old Testament history. The word itself comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, or anointed one. It means, quite literally, somebody who has been smeared or smudged with oil. And by that act has been consecrated to the Lord, uh, set aside, given a particular authority. And the thing is, early on in the Old Testament, Mashiachs or Christs were aplenty. There were lots of them. Lots of Christs running around. Some Christs were priests. They were anointed to offer sacrifices in the temple and to lead the people in holy worship. Some Christs were kings. They were marked as monarchs to rule over the nation. Some Christs uh, were prophets, people that would speak great and uh, shaking truths to a wayward country. But as the Old Testament progresses and ideas evolved and solidified, the word takes on a different meaning. Later in the Old Testament, the word Christ is more singular and prolific. It's a much more important term, but it seems to be placed on the forehead of one man, not many men. There was this idea that budded in Judaism that an individual would eventually rise and this individual would be anointed not so much with oil, but with the Holy Spirit, with the creative and imminent uh, power and personality of God, that that would be upon him and he would bring about what none of the other Christs had brought about. None of the priests, none of the kings, none of the prophets were able to do this and he would in a sense, combine their efforts in a purer way and bring about an equilibrium, a holy equilibrium, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Everybody would be helped because of this Mashiach, this Christ, this anointed one. And there were lots of Old Testament texts, ancient Messiah texts that were written hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene. I'll just read uh, two of them uh, from Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah has a messianic fixation. He's really looking forward to the day when this thing turns out all right. And so Isaiah 61, you see this equilibrium. Uh, Jesus uses this very text and a famous sermon in his hometown, and he believes that it speaks about himself. The text says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, 
to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Messiah does. He makes it all right. He creates a holy equilibrium for Israel. But it's not just for Israel. We learn that in other places from Isaiah. Isaiah 43, I read this uh, last Sunday. This describes how the Messiah's equilibrium would eventually leak out and heal the world. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The nations. He will not cry out or lift, his, lift up his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. In a smoldering wick, he will not quench. In the Old Testament, there was this hope that a future Christ would come. Now, some people translate into English the word Christ as king. That doesn't really carry all the connotation. Very often, a king, at least in a common understanding, this isn't always true, but a king is often the monarch over one nation, one people, one language. Think of Jesus not so much as a king, but as the world's last emperor, one who oversees all nations and is able to tether together all tribes and tongues <coughs> under one glittering empire. That is the understanding of the Christ from the Old Testament, the last great emperor. And this is what Peter is saying. You know, when Peter gets it wrong, he really gets it wrong. But when he gets it right, let's give him a little credit, even though that was an inspired idea, he has the courage to say it out loud, I know who you are. You are the most important man who has ever lived. You're God with us. You are the one who's going to make everything all right. You are the one who's going to bring holy equilibrium to the world. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And notice how Jesus responds to Peter's definition. Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That is, you didn't hear this from Aunt Shirley. This was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. He is saying to Peter, you didn't stumble upon this idea. It wasn't a good guess. It wasn't something that you heard from another rabbi or another great source. God whispered this into your ear. And so you're blessed because you receive not intuition but revelation. You had a word from the Lord. You had a bot coal right for you. Jesus agrees with his assessment. Do you see that? You will hear people sometimes say that Jesus of Nazareth never claimed to be the Son of God, the Christ, or God incarnate. I, I don't know what to say anymore. Like, it's all through the New Testament, I'm just saying, and all through the gospel narrative that Jesus accepts that sort of affirmation. He also doesn't want people to get the wrong idea about what being the Christ means, and so he tells the disciples to be quiet about it at the end of this passage. By the way, Peter really does misunderstand what being Christ means. He has the man right, but not the mission. We'll get to that next week. Uh, and so we have the Christ, the world's last emperor. 
And so we have a definition of Jesus. And now we're going to get a definition of Peter from Jesus. The rock. This is verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus, he's speaking about the future. There will be a time when I build the church. Now the church in Greek, it means assembly, ecclesia, assembly of people. One of the things that I love about this church is that it really is about us together because we don't own a building. Okay, so we meet in half Georgian architecture, okay, and it works for us. But I, I, I heard this said a few times by various people who are hugely well-intentioned, and they said, won't it be great someday when we have our own building because then we'll be a legitimate church? That's not right, you know. You, we are a legitimate church. Having a building doesn't make you legitimate at all, right? God does not live in structures built by human hands. He's very clear about this. Sometimes structures can be very helpful in terms of implementing a particular mission of the church, but always remember, this is just a building. You're the church. We're the church together. I'm not saying that if a very nice building didn't come along, it wouldn't help the ministry. Don't get nervous. Don't send me mean emails tonight at 1 a.m. But it is us, and, and Jesus is promising to build the ecclesia, the assembly of his people, on a rock. And that's where the controversy starts. The rock. Who or what is the rock? What is the foundation of this new assembly, the ground underneath our feet? To boil it down simply, there are basically two perspectives. The first puts more weight on Peter's own person. The second perspective puts more weight on Peter's profession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me talk about the first perspective and then the second. The first perspective, Jesus' words relate to Peter himself. Peter, as the apostle, is the rock upon whom the assembly is built. Our beloved Roman Catholic brothers and sisters have developed this idea, believing that in this scene, Jesus is consecrating the Apostle Peter as the first pope of the Catholic Church and is authorizing him, giving him the keys to the kingdom of heaven to open and shut that kingdom. And that opening and shutting, binding and loosing, is another sermon for another day. It is also the belief that Peter's successors, that is not only popes, but also bishops, who have received the laying on of hands from other popes or bishops, are part of that authority structure that binds and looses. The evidence for this perspective often sounds like this. Uh, The words Peter, in the Greek Petros, and rock, Petra, are intentionally similar. That's true. Moreover, uh, Peter is often mentioned as a leader in the apostolic band, sometimes mentioned first in the list of apostles, and that's also true. Additionally, Peter is the most quoted apostle in the Gospels. That might be because he just talked more than the rest of them. Wouldn't be surprising. 
Um, but nevertheless, that is also true. And so this view has some understandable and uh, credible components. But the second perspective, and one that I find more persuasive, is that Jesus' words relate to Peter as he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. It is about Peter at this moment and speaking these words, that the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, has the weight. A few reasons for this. Uh, Jesus couldn't be speaking of Peter's own personality as the rock, because in the very following verses, like really in the same passage that we illegitimately cut off, in those verses, Jesus then goes on to explain what being Christ means, which involves a cross and rejection by the uh, religious elites. And Peter says, I don't want that to happen to you. And Jesus calls him Satan and a stumbling block or a stumbling rock. It's quite a shift, right? More than that, Peter's life is more sand than it is stone. Uh, Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter, after Jesus' resurrection, hides himself in his old labor, afraid to be a public apostle. Peter, uh, later on in his ministry, chickens out uh, regarding a core matter of, of gospel living whenever Jews and Gentiles are supposed to eat together, and he doesn't want to do that. He wants to eat only with the Jews so that he looks more pure. And Paul has to yell at him for a whole chapter in Galatians 2. His personality is flotsam and jetsam. More than that, we have Paul's testimony from Ephesians 2, where he portrays Jesus Christ and not Peter as the cornerstone of the church, the building block, if you will, upon whom all the apostles are laid as a foundation. Not just Peter, but all of them. Moreover, the authority of the keys was not given in this text just to Peter, but given to all the apostles. I want you to reread verse 19 with me. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The authority of the keys, that's plural language. It's you, not singular, but you as in y'all. Whatever y'all bind, whatever y'all loose, plurals. And so it seems that this authority is given to more than just Peter. And that same authority is given to the entire apostolic band in John chapter 20, whenever Jesus sends out his disciples Remember, there are five great commissions, not just Matthew. Everybody just reads Matthew. But there are five, one in each gospel and then one in Acts, the beginning of Acts. Great commissions where Jesus is about to send out the apostles. He breathes the Spirit onto them and then says to all of his disciples, if you, plural, forgive the sins of any, they have forgiven them. If you withhold the sins of any, it is withheld. Peter's person is not so much the rock. We know that not only from the the New Testament's testimony about who is the cornerstone, but also what his life is like. Um, but his confession is the solid rock. That's the thing, by the way, that makes Peter strong. Whenever Peter is strong, like in the beginning of the book of Acts, when he preaches to the multitudes, it's because of his claim. It's because of his message. It's because he's proclaiming Christ Jesus. Now, I take great comfort in this, friends, because we ourselves have personalities which are quite similar to Peter's in many ways. We zig and we zag and we knock around and we try to figure things out and then run away from the things we figure out. But 
Peter's profession, unlike his personality, his profession doesn't tremble, doesn't shake, doesn't change, doesn't alter. To profess Jesus as he really is, the Christ, the Son of God, the world's final emperor, is the source of Peter's solidity and ours. This means, of course, that we need to be careful about the assembly that we attach to. The question needs to be asked, does it proclaim Christ as the New Testament represents him? Because if it doesn't, if it instead reduces Jesus, lowers the market, says that he is one guru among many gurus, then we ought not to attach there. Because frankly, it's not just that it's bad theology. You need more for your soul than that. And so do I. It's not good enough. We have lots of good teachers in our lives, people that have uh, amazing ethics. And we generally don't listen until after the fact, until, you know, after the fourth relapse. We need something more than that. Uh, We need somebody to do for us what only Christ can do. And so those are the two ideas in this passage. We have Peter calling Jesus the Christ, And Jesus, calling Peter, and any who share in his profession, a rock. Now, two closing words about Christ and the rock. First, Christ. Can we embrace, even within our own pluralistic age, the scandal of particularity? That is, do we dare confess that Jesus is more than intelligent, intuitive, and mystically inclined? Do we dare profess the Christ as represented by the scriptures in the Nicene Creed? Because to stand up and say together the Nicene Creed is a revolutionary act. Because if you mean what you say, you by necessity overthrow all other lesser Christs. And the thing is, everybody, everybody is looking for a Christ. Everyone's looking for a person, a concept, or a place which will grant them long-term equilibrium. A lot of people look to romantic love. They think, I'm an incomplete person, but there is somebody who is going to make up the difference. A perfect person who is both hot and nice. And I'm going to find them and be happy. And, you know, I got an amen. That's good. I mean, it's like... Remember John Lennon? I mean, he said this about Yoko Ono. He said once in in a poem, I don't want food, I don't want Jesus, I just want Yoko. I mean, that's quite a thing to say. I mean, it's Yoko Ono. There's a lot going on there. Uh, Some of you are old enough to really understand what I'm saying, which was so incredibly funny and profound. uh, So it's romantic love, that's my Christ. Or maybe your Christ is escape. The Messiah is a bottle of Thunderbird, or maybe four bottles of Thunderbird. And you can forget the the hellish nightmare that your life has become. Or maybe it's hoarding, living in a cocoon of stuff that gives you the illusion that you'll never be in want now because you have a little bit of everything crowding around you. Or maybe your Christ is the shape of your body. Maybe it's your weight. That if you're under 120, or if you're under 165, then you're doing well. Then you're a legitimate human being. Now you can really show yourself. Maybe it's your parents' expectations because they have a lot of thoughts about what you need to be doing to raise your kids. 
And you're always living under the shadow of their overblown authority. Or, or maybe it's professional recognition. I mean, who, what professor doesn't, to some degree, want to be professor of the year, right? That's the Christ. If you could just be professor of the year, I mean, you get a check, and that's nice, right? Who doesn't want a little money? And you could get in the paper. I mean, but, you know, I'm, I'm, none of you are laughing. I'm in trouble now. <laughs> Emails at 1 a.m. Um, let me tell you about my, my own Christ that was uh, shattered. And it was that. It was professional recognition. I'll never forget the moment. I was, uh, I think it was 23 or 24. I was taking ordination exams, which is like a purgatorial cleansing. And I was taking these exams over three days with all these scholars who were amazing and brilliant, and all these pastors in my diocese and Bishop Duncan in the back of the room. And, and for three days, you're tested on eight areas, and, and you hope to be proficient so that you can get ordained. Well, the last area of proficiency... Uh, was preaching. So they said, take your best sermon and preach it for this collective and get feedback. And I was feeling particularly good about a sermon that I had, uh, you know, preached and then revised four times. And so I, I volunteered to go first. There's a good idea folder and a bad idea folder. And, that, and, you know, uh, and so I, I got up there and I preached my 24-year-old heart out. And they trashed it. They said, you speak so quickly that even if we wanted to understand you, we couldn't. And they, they said, your illustrations didn't make sense and your outline didn't flow and you sound too much like your mentors. And so when are you going to you know, get your own ideas or your own voice? And, uh, and you know, we, we, we think that you really need to do a lot of work to even approach mediocrity. That was a line that one of them had. And whenever that was said, poor Bishop Duncan in the back uh, uh, was, was looking at me and hearing that and going, <laughs> which was not a great face to see. <laughs> you know? And I have to tell you, I mean, from... My heart, I was just devastated. I was just devastated. And I was crying in the car on the way home, and I thought, I've always wanted to be a minister, you know, since I was little. I, I really poured myself into this, and I, I thought I was okay. And if I don't have this, if I don't have preaching, then what do I have? Now, that may sound stupid to you, but it meant a lot to me. And, it, and I felt like it was taken away. And I, and I kept asking in the car as I was talking out loud, half to God, half to me. And I said, well, now what do I have? And then I realized this. Do you know that you can still be a Christian and not be an Anglican priest? <laughs> Did you know that you can still know the love of God and not wear this fabulous outfit? <laughs> what would I have if I didn't have preaching? There's an answer. The answer is Jesus. Neither the Christ nor his loving commitment to me was ever in jeopardy. Whether I'm a skilled preacher or a bad preacher, it doesn't really matter when it comes to those core truths. I had my little Christ shattered on the, on the hard linoleum floor of reality. Thanks be to God. What liberation to have all of these little porcelain Jesuses shattered so that we can have the real thing, 
the genuine article, all other Christs are eventually dashed and destined for the dust, buried under eroding epitaphs. But there is only one Christ who beat back the power of death with his own wounded fists. He is the only Christ we've got, and he's the only Christ we need. Now, something about the rock. Everyone needs a profession that is stronger and more enduring than our own circumstances and personalities. I say this in my marriage homily. Whenever I have the couple in front of me, I say, look, you are entering into a, into a stable institution that has stood the test of time, but the two of you will not be the same yous in ten years. Your temperaments, sometimes part of your personality, what, what you like and dislike about the other person, that's going to be in flux to some degree. But you're entering into this stable and hopefully stabilizing institution that we know as marriage. The thing is, <clears throat> our profession regarding Jesus as the Christ is the most important one that we'll ever make. It is more important than pledging allegiance to a flag, than swearing truth in a courtroom, than making vows to a spouse. It is more important because the ground is even more solid. There is no firmer ground than the ground of Calvary. And the good news for us is that Christ will not be any less Christ in a year or in five or in a hundred. Our shaking legs, and they're probably going to always shake a little, stand on the firmest of foundations. And if Jesus is the Christ, the universe opens up to us because this Christ, this Jesus Christ, is the friend of the toxic masses. See, the gospel is not so much that Jesus Christ is Lord, though that's very true. The gospel is that the Lord is Jesus Christ. That is, the God of all things shows himself to us in the frail yet powerful form of Jesus of Nazareth who gives his life away. And therefore, Charles Cooley, the sociologist of yesteryear, is right. We are often defined by how we imagine others perceive us, but we don't have to imagine how Jesus perceives us. The cross has made that clear. Who are you? And who am I? And who are we? You are not your successes. You are not your sins. You are the one whom Jesus loves. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Come